0: You know, whenever I do those late night phone episodes, I always run the risk of them being really fractured and never really getting to the point. It's funny how like the way when you do a show, when you just talk like this, it's funny how not just the device you use, but also where you are, where you're sitting, it all kind of colors the way you think and the way you communicate. Like when you're sitting down in front of a microphone, you kind of approach it that way. Whereas like pacing back and forth in my kitchen, holding my phone, it's like, <laughs> it's like the the medium, the change in medium <laughs> changes how my brain works or something. Uh, but because of that, like I feel like when I do an episode like I did last night, that's like two hours of just rambling. I'm sure it's just filled with like, uh, like, I'm sure it's just filled with my own tics. I talked about those teenage girls who have developed this internet social epidemic of having tics i think i have my own ticks as well but i think something that i didn't get a the chance to say last night that i meant to because i was talking about the importance of humor and just the fact that humor communicates self-control like somebody could have you handcuffed they could be threatening to chop off your fingers god forbid and If you manage to laugh or make a joke in that moment, you communicate to them, you you communicate to your torturer that they don't have total control over you. And that's why you see that in stories a lot. You see that in movies where somebody's in that exact position. And if the hero or the person who's, you know, on the bad end of the situation, if they manage to make a joke or laugh it off, that always infuriates the torturer or the bad guy even more but I think that's based on a very real phenomenon. I don't think that's just something you see in movies or read about in stories. It does infuriate people when you manage to laugh in a situation where they, if somebody else, especially if they're trying to control you, yeah, there are situations that are inappropriate where you shouldn't laugh or make a joke, but in a situation where somebody else is trying to impose their will on you one way or another, if you joke and laugh, especially in a way they don't like or at their expense, nothing infuriates them more. And so I was talking about that with regard to free speech. How free speech often ramps up by targeting humor. Because whether it's conscious or not, it's just—it's almost as if the people who are looking to impose their will just naturally gravitate toward it. And I think it is because it does infuriate them. It's, it's almost primal, like the idea that people have power over themselves, because that seems to be the main way that you exhibit self-control, I feel like, is through humor. One of the main ways, and so it makes sense that people who are authoritarian-minded, people who want to impose their will, that's the phrase that I came to mind recently, and I feel like it's really effective, imposing their will because that's what it boils down to. But I think those people, it's not even necessar- necessarily that they have some master plan where they say, well, in first, in, our, in this campaign, the first people we're going to go after are the comedians and the funny people. Sometimes they might do that, but I think it's almost like magnetism, like some sort of evil magnetism, where it's like, that's the thing that infuriates them the most. That's Those are people who are independent, those are people who have control over their own minds, self-control. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that humor gets targeted, but you know, they can't, no, and nobody can take that away from you. That's the thing. Even if even if you're not allowed to say it, you're allowed to think it. So nobody can actually take it from you, even if you're not allowed to express it. But what I wanted to get at that I don't think I said last night was just that that's the most effective weapon you have as well. Like if there is something that you don't like, if there's something going on that you don't like, the most effective weapon you have is humor. Because it can be subtle, it can be heavy-handed, it could be a parody. But that's always one of the most effective ways to neutralize something that, you know, it's it's always the best way to kind of neutralize a some sort of force, you know, if there's some sort of negative force, the best way to deal with it is often through humor. Not that that's the only way, but it's something because I think humor is so innate and because it is something that it's a very individual expression, you know, and it relates to that idea of like self-control, but it's very humor is very inwardly oriented. Like it really does come from within, you know, even if it's brought on by something outside, but you can also use it as a weapon, and I think right now it's probably going to be the most effective weapon against people who are imposing their will. And I don't see much sense of humor from them. I don't see much genuine sense of humor from the people who are doing that. It's not even the—I it, don't even see them trying to be funny is what I'm getting at. Whether I like the humor or not, I don't even see them trying to be funny. And the only laughter I really see is mean-spirited. Because when you use humor as a weapon, it doesn't have to be mean-spirited. Sometimes it's even more effective if if it's not. Because I think if mean-spirited humor was the most effective weapon, far more people would just be, you know, just extremely crass and blunt and harsh. You know, like, like racist jokes, for example. Like when you think of just classic racist jokes... That many of us heard growing up. Not that people were telling them all, all the time, but it was like you would come across them, you know, that you'd just come across them. But, you know, a lot of those, there's a reason why those weren't necessarily like what comedians were saying on stage. You know, even in earlier eras, you know, maybe people, yeah, there was a lot of humor about women, about wives. I'm sure there was some other stuff that brushed up against, I mean, we, we know that people were stereotyped. We know that it was not uncommon for different ethnic groups, different races to be stereotyped as a part of mainstream comedy. But the, the sort of racist jokes I'm talking about are ones where, I mean, you either know them or you don't, but they're kind of the classics where it's just, they're just these extremely harsh, mean-spirited jokes. But I don't think that, I don't think it's just that they're offensive that kept those from being on TV or in, most comedy clubs, even when society was, you know, different, let's say. I think it's also that people don't necessarily seek humor that's, that is that blunt. And that sort of humor, like, it seems to be most popular. It's like one of those things like friends whisper to friends. And not just because it's inappropriate, not just because you don't want people to, to hear you making a racist joke, But I think that that actually is what makes it funny to people is the fact that it's hidden from view. Because sometimes like, you know, the inappropriate just on its own, like the fact that you can't say it actually makes the humor that much more powerful, which is a lesson that censors should learn. Because when you censor pretty middle of the road content, just because it goes against the current grain, suddenly people think it's more important. It has more power. That's something people don't realize is, you know, when you impose your will and you prevent people from even making fairly, yeah, just fairly middle of the road jokes, mildly offensive jokes, they wouldn't even be that funny on their own. You know, because I wouldn't consider myself, especially at this point, somebody who, like, I don't think offensive humor is that funny anymore. Like, there was a point in my life when I was a kid where it was just anything offensive I thought was amusing. But right now, it's like when I think about things that I actually genuinely find funny, they're almost always subtle. Like, if there is something offensive about them, there is kind of a subtlety to it or a truth to it rather than just hitting you over the head bluntly with it. But I, I think people who encourage censorship or participate in censorship, they often ignore that fact that they're actually giving more power to a certain idea sometimes when they shut it off. When they tell people they can't laugh at it or pay attention to it, people seek it out. I mean, that's a common effect in marketing to the point where it's a cliche. Oh, bad press is good press. But I think they know that. I think people who try to impose their will in our current world today, they know that any press is good press, which is why they go for just shutting it down entirely. Like they don't just go for calling things out. They don't just go for picketing and protesting. There's an effort to institutionalize all this, an increasingly successful effort to institutionalize and have this play out through the court of law to actually stop people from being able to say, any, say what they don't want them to say. So in that way, bad press isn't good press because bad press is coupled with these networks shutting you down entirely, making it impossible to communicate, impossible to share what you do, to share your ideas for that matter. You know, so that's something that's different. That's, and, and, you know, and every authoritarian regime knows that. Every authoritarian-minded person knows that, that bad press can be good press, so it's best just not to let it exist at all. But right now we're at a point where you, know, you can still access most ideas. You know, you, Right now, it's, you know, it's, the censorship isn't nearly as bad as it could be, and as a result, good ideas are still getting out. But because there's this forbidden aspect to them, they now have more power. Like, if you tell somebody, like, you can't touch this rock. There's a big rock in a park. A boulder. Normally, everybody would just walk by it. Oh, there's a boulder. You might look at it. Oh, cool boulder. Cool boulder. Cool boulder alert. Uh, Stupid, but that's all you're going to think if you think about it at all. But if somebody is standing there and they're saying, you can't touch this boulder, nobody can touch this boulder. In fact, I already contacted the, the national wildlife, I already contacted the state and I talked to the ranger and you know, I have his backing. If anybody touches this rock, you're going to be kicked out of this park. You're going to make people want to touch that rock. That rock is going to seem way more important. And people would say that like what they're fighting for, the reason they want to impose their will, isn't as arbitrary as touching a rock. But in some ways it is because it's so abstract. Many of these ideas are so abstract. They might as well just be touching a rock. But point being, you make that rock that much more attractive. Now a lot of people are going to be like, you know what? I never really looked at that rock. It looks like a lot of other boulders here. You know, Now I really want to touch it. I want to touch it just out of spite. You ever touched a rock out of spite? I don't know that I have. But you create that sort of situation where you give something that much more power. And I think that's what's still going on right now. Because there still is a resistance against this, these ideas. You know, I, I think that it, those who remain, you know, which is most people, really. But those who remain and are willing to speak out, you know, they become that much more alluring to people who see what's going on and think like, you know, I don't like this. I, don't, I just don't like it. But I've been thinking a lot lately about, like, what to do about it. Because it's not like I'm so worked up, you know? It's not like, yeah, I'm talking about it every day. I'm doing a show about it every day, practically. Lately, it seems like it's all on... I mean, things are bubbling up. I mean, I think that's why I'm talking about it so much. I think that's why I can't manage to, you know... Like I said, like, even when I was listening to The Misfits and Danzig recently a couple weeks ago... And I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, I haven't really sat down and listened to my teenage favorite band in a long time. I should do that. And then just doing a little, like, oh, yeah, you know, I also haven't really looked to see what they're doing. I haven't really caught up with, like, what they've been doing the last few years. And, like, immediately, though, it was like, it wasn't even like I was, There's no way I could look for it. It's not like I typed into Google, Danzig thoughts on woke culture or Jerry only Trumpsfeld donations. But if you just search for like an update on those guys, that's what comes up. Like culture war stuff is like one of the first things that came up for me, just trying to get an update on like what those guys are up to. Hey, you know, what are those guys up to? (laughs) Uh, But uh, it was just funny to me though, because it's like the first thing came up, oh, it's an article about how Danzig defended Trumpsfeld and criticized Planned Parenthood. Planet Parenthood and, Jer- oh, they found Jerry only donated money to Trump's film. You know, that's what comes up. And so it's, it just seems like it's, every, it's on everybody's mind. And many people are quiet, but so many people are either expressing disgust and pushing back on what's been going on while other people are part of that. Other people are encouraging it. They're participating in this imposition of will. So uh, it it seems it's just one of those things though. you even just look something up and like one of the first things that's going to come up now is something related to the culture war. And I I don't even, there might be a better phrase than culture war. It's just, it's one that has been in use for years now. And I feel like it sums it up. You know, it's not the best, but people are going to know what I'm talking about if I say that. But, you know, with all this kind of bubbling to the surface, like seeing a lot of people like really just at wit's end with it. Cause it's gotten so weird. It's gotten so truly weird. And I like weirdness, but this is a chaotic, unpredictable, I mean, it's kind of predictable, but it's certainly chaotic weirdness that just isn't even aesthetically pleasing. Cause the thing about chaos, <laughs> let's go into chaos here, but like the thing about chaos is cause I'm a fan, you know, while I do live a very orderly life, I love chaos I'll always kind of put my face right up next to it you know and dive in a little bit even probably a lot more than I even realize just just living my life the way I do but the thing about chaos is like it can be absolutely beautiful as many of us know I mean chaos can be awesome in, in just any regard in art with ideas You know, chaos can be very aesthetically pleasing, not all chaos, but the same can be said for order. And I like some combination of the two, you know, not to get pretentious here, although that ship sailed, that ship sailed when I was born, I think, but, uh, a ship sailed when you were born, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of like my, my drawings, like my drawings, I don't, I don't think of them this way. It's just what I do. I just do what I like and what's natural to me. But that's like, I mean, that's kind of my drawings. I mean, there's like there's a chaotic element to it, but it, I feel like there's always a structure or something in it. But like order itself isn't necessarily attractive. Sometimes it is like order can be extremely aesthetically attractive. I mean, that's why people are attracted to fascist imagery. Even people who aren't fascists can look at, you know, fascist aesthetics and be like, well, there's something cool about that. Just like with Soviet aesthetics. Like you don't have to be a Soviet sympathizer to look at Soviet era aesthetics and be like, that's actually pretty cool. Like when you look at their propaganda posters, you can look at that and be like, that's pretty cool. doesn't mean you believe Soviet propaganda, but chaos, you know, it can be (laughs) really freaking ugly and that's how I'm feeling about everything. Because, you know, so much of our morale is defined by the aesthetics around us. And whether you like modernity or not really isn't a question. Because I like some modern buildings, you know. I'm not against modern architecture. I like the future. I like the present for that matter. But what we're dealing with isn't modernity. I mean, I think sometimes people get that wrong. I think some people are such fetishists for the past. Cuz I mean there's there's no comparison. Like there, like a cathedral is a cathedral and it's beautiful. And yeah, it does suck that we're not building things like that anymore. For whatever reason, I don't know. I don't I don't really know the reason why why we stopped building things like that. I mean, I'm, I know there's there's architectural revival and occasionally something gets built in an old style, but still for the most part I'm not entirely sure. I'm sure somebody could break it down for me like maybe the materials aren't as readily available probably a lot of it has to do with just the skill, the techniques. Some of those may have gotten lost to time but I don't re- reject modernity like sometimes a building can be modern and slick and futuristic and it can stand the test of time. it can look good like you can be kind of excited seeing it like whoa that's a that's a new idea. I don't really care that much about buildings in general, but still, I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily favor tradition in every case. It just, but again, it's just—it's a matter of taste. It's just what I've been harping on again with humor, with what interests you, with your taste. To some degree, you can choose it, especially if you're trying to be something. Like if you're trying to be something, or like something seems exciting or you're trying to identify a certain way, like you can easily like kind of delude yourself into thinking you like something you don't. And of course, like we all all have the experience of like, you might listen to an album and be like, I don't like this. I don't even like this. But you listen to it many times and eventually you do realize, like and sometimes all it can take is one little thing. Like there have been albums that I've written off before and then after several listens, I'll notice one little guitar part that makes me appreciate the guitar as a whole on the whole album. And then next thing you know, I like the album, but sometimes it's just like hearing some little microcosm makes me appreciate the macrocosm of something that I might not have appreciated initially. So I think you can develop taste. Like if you try hard enough and that kind of thing, but for the most part, it's like you really don't choose that. You really don't choose what you desire. And so, a war on, a war on uh, free speech is, to me, especially the way this one is being shaped, really is a war on your taste, your judgment, your sense of humor, what you naturally find interest in. And that's where I draw a hard line. You know, that's where I draw the hardest line, honestly, is that aspect. And it makes me wonder, too. It's like the people who do try to impose their will or try to say that your taste needs to reflect this. You know, I've given some examples recently, including from people that I personally know. So so it's not just like, oh, I looked at the Internet and I saw what the craziest person was saying. I try to reference what people I know say, like people I like. I always want to make that point. But, you know, just people who kind of demand quotas. Like, you need to listen to a certain amount of this. You need to promote this many black artists. You're not playing enough black artists on every night's of school night. It's like, that really offends my taste. Because my taste isn't based on these socio-political factors, but it really makes me question other people's taste, because I believe people like the things they like, and even if I don't like something, I'm never somebody who judges somebody for their taste, at least like not since I've been a teenager, you know? I I truly don't judge people for their taste. I might joke about it. I might talk a little shit, because that's fun. It's fun to talk a little shit. But for the most part, like I, I truly don't judge people for their taste. If anything, I judge the people closest to me. <laughs> and I feel that I'm judged by the people closest to me, too. Like, my friends who are deeply into similar music that I'm into, I feel like we're the hardest on each other. Like, if one of them likes an album and I don't like it, I'll get shit for it. Be like, what do you mean you don't like it? You know, it's like, it's fun, though. It's all good nature. It's with friends. But when it comes to other people, like I, I would never expect them to support something. I would never expect them to have any other reason for being into it other than they simply like it. But the fact that you have to include like socio-political factors into it. Like oh you list your you oh you're going to list your 10 favorite female country or your, your 10 favorite country singers. I noticed there's only two women. What's up with that? There's a lot of female country singers and you only got two women. It's things like that. Like I mentioned the guy who was complaining about the classic rock drummers, somebody who didn't include any black drummers in this like list of rock drummers, you know, things like that. Just demanding that people's taste reflect hiring quotas, basically. It's that sort of logic, but applied to what you like, what you're into, what you're interested in. and it makes me wonder like did those people like do those sort of people who think you need to do that did they not have taste in the things that they were into or that they are into like was their taste just always the product of what their peers think i know that's true to some degree like posers exist but i don't i don't look at everybody who's into something and think oh they're just pretending to make friends i mean that happens but i don't i tend to not think especially people i know like i know that people i know have a genuine taste in in what they like But the added element of these new kind of socio-political demands on your taste, it just makes me wonder, like, did you ever sincerely like any of the things you liked? Like, what does this say about your own judgment? What does this say about your own taste? That the zeitgeist can suddenly make you make strange demands when it comes to something that's supposedly just in you. I like what I like. But all that's funny to me, too. You know, I do find the humor in that. Because I just think, like, man, the trouble you're putting yourself in. Or, I mean, the trouble you're forcing yourself to go through. Like, this show is a testament to all of the weird stuff that goes on in my head. Like, all, all of the just neuroses unfold display. And I'm not out to judge anybody else's neuroses. But it's just unbelievable, unbelievable to me that you would even put yourself through that. Like somebody i know was talking about like her job like she was playing a bunch of black artists last year and like bragging about how she like turned all these people on to black music or some, you know that kind of idea and it's like do you think those people didn't know about black music and like the music you play for people is designed to make them support it because of the identity of who created it i mean i know people are going to do that but it's just that sort of thinking. I'm just like, it seems like putting yourself through a whole lot of trouble. And now I'm, I'm of course, thinking about it. But fortunately, it's not my problem. It's just it's, it's just, it's really interesting to see that happen. And it does make me question, like, like what is that? Like, like, shouldn't that make you really think about why you like what you like? If you're doing that to somebody, if you're imposing your will. Because it it pretty much suggests that taste is just a matter of somebody imposing their will on you. Or your taste is just a matter of, you know, it, it might as well just be something you're told to listen to. But that's authoritarianism right there. You know, we all know authoritarians who take control of the jukebox... Or if you're in the car with them, they always have to be the one forcing everybody to listen to their music. You know, those people exist. But hopefully it's because they genuinely enjoy it. Like, if somebody's going to if somebody's gonna force me to listen to music, you know, I hope it's because they genuinely enjoy it. And I'm not the kind of person who likes to do that. Like, even though I do a radio show, even though I've been doing a radio show for like eight years, every night's a school night... I'm actually not somebody who likes to play DJ around people. I don't like to be the one in control of the playlist. It's too much stress. I find it really stressful. Other people like that. Other people kind of like being in control, and that's cool. But I'm you know, I'm also the kind of person, though, where, like, unless it's something really grating, I'm not going to be too upset by whatever someone plays. Like, I have my opinions... But in that situation, I'm like, you know, the kind of stuff that I would want to play wouldn't necessarily be what other people are into, like the people I'm with. So why should I take control of it? Like, why should I impose my will? Obviously, there has to be somebody who comes up with the the songs because we as human beings, we need music on all the time. Can't walk, can't run, can't do chores, can't drive. Got to have music in our ears all the time. Constant. It's amazing. Can't go to the grocery store. Can't shop. Got to have music on (laughs) everywhere you go. That's such a funny thing about us is just that it's like as we've gotten more and more ability to listen to music in different ways, especially through headphones, like we've decided that music has to be on everywhere we go. But yeah, I mean, somebody's got to make the decision. Somebody's got to come up with a playlist. And fortunately, that's just music. I'm willing to let somebody else impose their will on me by playing DJ. Because I recognize that as human beings, it's kind of weird when we don't have music. As much as I like music not being on. Like, I don't listen to music that often anymore. But I usually have to have something on. The silence does kind of get me. So I get it. I I understand why a bunch of people aren't going to want to hang out with no music playing. So somebody's got to be the DJ. But yeah, I don't like to be it. I don't like to be in that position. But Retaining your taste. I mean, all these things, you're going to retain them anyway, unless you let somebody impose their will. Like these are things, like I said, humor is, like I just mentioned, is one where, you know, somebody can't change that. They can't change you from finding things funny that you're going to find funny. Like Even if they force you into a position where you can't express that, you're still going to find the same things funny. But the same is true for taste. The same is true for what you find interest in. Because people, that's a classic story. You know, it's like the kid who's not supposed to read a certain book sneaks off and reads it. Like, where there's an opportunity, someone will find it. It's like slaves teaching each other to read and write. They're not supposed to, but they find a way to do it, because that's interesting to them. And you make it that much more coveted. You make it that much more important. Because the thing is, like, <laughs> you know, it's a funny example, but, like, thinking about, like, letting someone else control the jukebox... That's me totally saying, hey, you know what? You do it. We're going to follow your rules when it comes to what we're going to listen to. I do that willingly. It's kind of like letting somebody else drive a car. Like if somebody else insists on driving the car, you know that if you're going to ride in that car, you have to follow their rules. If they don't want you to eat in the car, you can't eat. You're going to have to listen to what they want you to listen to. You kind of you kind of give yourself up to their will in a way, and two, it's like they're gonna they're gonna go the way they want to go, they're gonna drive the route you want to go. You're not allowed to be a backseat driver, so you kind of have to you know give up your own will, and that's true for just letting somebody play DJ for the night, somebody control the songs you listen to, the music but you do it willingly. But when you don't do it willingly, like when somebody, like if somebody was just a jerk and is like, I'm controlling the music. And in fact, you can't. Like if that's the way somebody goes about it, if they approach that situation and they were to say to you, you can't pick any music to listen to tonight. I'm not letting you. It's kind of like touching the rock (laughs) where your impulse is going to be like, you know what? Now I want to. And in fact, it doesn't even matter if I do or not. I just really don't want you to control the jukebox now. That's your go-to response. If somebody's like, you don't get to be DJ, I'm the DJ. And I'm going to play your least favorite music all night. Like, I don't even care about becoming the DJ. I just don't want that person to be the DJ. And that's how I feel a lot. Like, I, I I, I readily recognize that we're always under a certain amount of control and influence by larger forces as participants in a society and a culture we're always under the influence of certain zeitgeists as well as certain limitations you know we're, you know to some degree somebody is always imposing their will in some way but what we're seeing now is a whole I've never seen it before. I've never seen it in the country I grew up in. But it is, it does feel like that person who's like, you know, I'm not going to let you have any say. I'm going to have all the say. I'm going to make decisions for everybody. And not just because I naturally fell into this role and you let me. You went along with it because it seemed fine. It seemed like a decent enough arrangement. But I'm going to tell you what to do. You know, I just, I'll never respond favorably to that. Like, even if I never wanted to touch the rock, and I don't plan on touching the rock, I don't want to touch the rock, now I just want you away. My only goal is that you get away from that rock. So that's where i come from cuz like i'm not somebody who wants to impose my will on anybody even in small ways like i'm happy if somebody listens to the show and finds anything i say interesting if they can manage to get through these barrage periods where i just do episodes every day you know i want i want people to like it and find it interesting sure be entertained in some way but it's like at no point do I want anybody to think the way I think, and actually I wouldn't even recommend it. It's like Harmony Corinne, Corinne, however you say his name. I remember he was on David Letterman, which that was great when he was this he was on David Letterman a few times in the nineties and it was great. He totally speaking of chaos, it's like he totally shook up the whole system and pissed off David Letterman. Really beautiful to see it. But they were talking about his book. He had written a book. It's kind of an experimental book, of course. Like a lot of what he does or, or was doing then. But David Letterman's like, well, tell me about your book. That's how he sounds. Well, tell me about... I don't, I've never tried to do David Letterman. I don't do... I'm not good at impersonating famous people. I'm not good at doing impersonations of real people. I just create these phantoms in my brain and give them voices. But, uh... David Letterman's asking Harmony, he's like, just tell me about your book. Tell me what's it about, you know, and like, and then Harmony's not really giving him an answer and David Letterman, David Letterman, I think he asked him like, well, do you like your book? And Harmony, Harmony just says, well, I can't, I can't endorse it. (laughs) I love that. I can't endorse it. And David Letterman's like, you can't endorse your own book, (laughs) you know, Uh, but it's funny. It's perfect. I love that. Like, I feel the same way about anything I say on here, where it's like, you know, I say this stuff and I believe it, but it's like I don't endorse it. And I actually, I I wouldn't recommend anybody think the way I think or try to see the world the way I see it. Not because it's bad or, or that dark or anything, but I'm just like, you'd probably be happier not thinking like this. Like, this feels natural to me, but it's like, I don't know, analyzing life and things, you know, dissecting life too much. It's not for everybody, I don't think. So I can't endorse the things I say, necessarily, but... You know, I'm definitely not trying to impose my will. Let's put it that way. But just pay, like think about that. Like, think about that when you're out in the world. Think about that when you see people expressing themselves. And I'm at a point right now where that's my baseline. My baseline for communication with other people is are they trying to tell me what to do or not? Like, I really am just a a toddler, who a defiant two-year-old who is is just like, don't tell me what to do. But I have to say, like, I don't want to touch the rock. I don't want to do anything. Like, I don't want to... You, you always run the risk of pushing too far. I mean, I guess it's part of it. Like, anytime you push back, you always run the risk of pushing too far. It's something we see all the time. And sometimes once you start pushing, the momentum just carries something. And I think that's kind of the logic of what's going on right now. I think, like, at its best, and I, I'm very cynical about it at this point, but this push for leftist cultural authoritarianism it's becoming much more entrenched in our federal politics and just every aspect of our lives are from professional to personal. But this leftist authoritarianism at its best is coming from a place where it's saying somebody else was opposing their will on us for so long. That we need to push back. And it did feel for most of my life, it felt like the left was simply pushing back. Like last night, I know I talked about like watching a show like South Park in the 90s and early 2000s. They were kind of fighting that battle on both fronts where there were equally powerful cultural forces who were trying to impose their will, and South Park was able to push at both of them, and both of those different forces were opposed to each other, and they're still around today, but we can see where culturally and increasingly politically, and in every other aspect of our lives, what was once the left simply pushing back went too far, and it hasn't gone as far as it could go, so I'm not trying to sound hysterical or anything, but it's happening, and it's been happening, but they push too far but you know when you push back on that you in turn don't want to push too far and i think humor plays a role in that just to go back to the beginning humor keeps you in check like yeah you can lose your mind and be a laughing freak who just has your own inside jokes Like the guy on the street who's screaming and then laughing and screaming and laughing and you can't even understand what he's saying. I mean, like, you don't want to be that guy. But it again goes back to that aspect of self-control. By simply being able to control yourself. By giving yourself that range of motion. By keeping that alive. By using humor as your weapon. If you have it if you have a sense of humor and because I, I don't i don't just mean making jokes yourself i don't necessarily mean making a mockery of things yourself but simply appreciating those who do and it's easy to do and one of the easiest ways is by pointing out hypocrisies or logical fallacies and there's a lot of people who are caught up in that Like last night, I kind of went through a whole, I was basically describing the rationale and logic I have with free speech. I would never do that anymore with somebody who is trying to limit free speech, though, because we would be talking over each other. And I realized that when I had my big online blow up with a bunch of friends I I know in person about free speech after January 6th, that that battle that I I reference on here so much. But that was a very eye-opening moment for me because... I really broke down my own rationale for free speech and I realized that that didn't even matter to those people and I already knew it. Like I've already seen enough of this dialogue play out to where I know that those who are looking to impose their will, they don't care about the rationale for free speech. It's not even something they care about. They don't even care about upholding free speech. They truly don't. And so as a result, there's no rationale, there's no logic you're going to be able to offer them they are out in the twilight zone. And so, as a result, there's no point in having that kind of dialogue. And then, having had that dialogue during a very heated moment in our country with people that I personally know, people that I've hung out with in the flesh for who knows how many hours, you know, the way that conversation went, and with several different people, some of them more reasonable than others. But a, a, not just one group of people, but just uh, there were, you know, even an ex coworker weighed in and, and stuff. And he was very, um, he was very tactful and well-spoken. I appreciated his comment a lot, but just some of the other ones, even though it was civil, it just, it was very eye-opening to me that even with people you know, even people who know you aren't even willing to entertain the conversation from a place of, of, Rationality, And I don't mean rationality in the sense that, like, they're irrational and crazy. I mean it in the sense that like, actually breaking down your rationale and logic. And as I've said, like, I'm not attached to those things. Like, I'm not really, I'm, I never, I, I, STEM? When I hear STEM, I think of a plant. I didn't even know what STEM stood for until recently. I really didn't. When people would talk about STEM, I, I, I kind of knew, but I didn't actually break down what that acronym meant. Like STEM might as well be LGBTQ to me. It might as well be the same thing to me, honestly. So I'm not like one of these people who, who comes from that perspective. I'm not some like philosophy major who's like, well, if we follow the Socratic method, even though that's great, like, I mean, I, Socratic method's incredible, but I'm not somebody who who needs to have everything come from that place. But I've just i come to the realization that engaging in that kind of argument or debate, it's good for me to do that. Like last night, that's what I was doing. I was kind of breaking down and like exploring my own rationale for why I believe what I believe. And that's important for me to do. It's important for me to do on this show, even if it's redundant, even if I'm just saying the same thing I've said over and over again, even if, if nobody listens, it's good for me to break down why I believe the things I believe from a rational place. But I've realized more and more that that's not the argument that can take place. That's not the conversation that can take place. And I'm so fundamentally opposed to anybody who's trying to limit free speech, especially the way that they're going about it now, that I don't even want to engage in that conversation in good faith. Like, things have reached a point where, like, one of the reasons why I'm avoiding people, aside from my usual reasons, is just because I... I I kind of feel like I'm in a a place right now where I would snap, not in an an unhinged way, but I'm just ready to just, I don't know. I I just feel like I have so much scorn that it's just, I'd rather not even go there because it's not going to do any good. Like it's not going to go, it's not going to do any good for me to make a mockery of someone else's idea. So I'd rather just not even discuss it, especially because they're not going to be coming from a place where they want to change their mind. And I know they're not going to change my mind. And it's unfortunate that things have gotten, have gone this far. Because I do believe just making light of it, relentlessly, but not falling into the trap of just pointing out hypocrisies. Because I mean, humor is, it evolves so quickly and organically and it has the, like I said last night, the the, the diminishing, the Dominican Republic, the diminishing returns. Oh, when you said DR, I thought you meant Dominican Republic. He's talking about diminishing returns. But, you know, the law of diminishing returns that I was mentioning, you know, that's especially harsh with humor, where it's very hard to keep squeezing true, genuine humor out of something. Like, even if it's still funny, it's hard to squeeze out that moment where it just rips you, or it just rips you. You can't keep squeezing it and get that over and over again. And as a result, you know, humor has to be very creative. It has to surprise you. And so I see taking more and more creative ways to just knock all this shit out, to just highlight the absurdity of it. Because you don't even have to declare yourself. That's the nice thing about humor, too. You know, some people think comedians hide behind that. Actually, the very people I'm talking about believe comedians hide behind their humor. There's an increasingly strong belief that people who make jokes, be they professional comedians or just people who enjoy joking around about anything and everything, there's this belief that it's always hiding some sort of true belief. Behind every joke, there's, there's a, a truth. But there's this kind of increasing belief that if you make a certain kind of joke... It is reflective of how you truly feel, which goes against the entire idea of humor. And it also demands that if you are doing some kind of parody, that you remove all the ambiguity. Because, I mean, what makes a parody funny to me is when there's kind of an ambiguity where you're not entirely sure what it's trying to communicate. And a parody, too, like in addition to the to the ambiguity of it, it doesn't need to declare itself. Like a parody becomes less funny. A parody basically becomes propaganda when it declares itself. When it has a disclaimer. And, you know, it's effective when you don't do that. Like an effective parody is when you can't entirely be sure what they're trying to communicate, but you can appreciate the parody on its own. The parody highlights the absurdity of it. And that's what humor is. Humor is, at its core, just highlighting the absurdity of life. And it's almost like we we like reminders. Like, Like being reminded of the absurdity of life in a sharp way like, we, we seek that. It's like, it's almost like you go, it's it, you pay attention to funny people or you watch a comedy. You know, you listen to somebody talk who's funny, largely as a reminder to be like, oh, yeah, things are fucking wild and absurd. And that's wonderful because I'm laughing about it. Because you think about, like, the, in a stand-up comedy setting where... Like a standard reaction from an audience member at a stand-up comedy show would be, oh, it's so true. It's so true. Oh, my. I never thought of it that. Oh, he's, he's so right. That's a common reaction, though. Like, he's so right. That's so true. It's something that you were aware of, but you just never thought of it. it like, it's an epiphany for the fan. It's, a, it's an epiphany for the listener. Because it's something, and that's what an epiphany always is, at least for me. It's almost always something that I kind of knew already, but didn't feel it. And then it's like the epiphany was that lightning bolt moment where it's like, oh, I feel it now and I see it better. But it's, it, you could almost see where it was always within reach. It's not like something, it's not like some celestial offering was given to you. I mean, it kind of is. An epiphany feels like that. But it's usually something that was within reach. And that's one of the reasons why audiences at comedy shows react that way because it's like, oh yeah, that was something that was always within my reach and you mentioned it. I always saw that rock. <laughs> I always saw that boulder at the park, but until he touched it, I didn't I, you know, I didn't even realize that you could just touch that boulder. Like you could just put your hand on that boulder. That's kind of what it's like, though. It's like, I didn't realize that you could actually think about it that way, but I know what you're talking about. That's so much of what comedy is. But it's made that much better when it doesn't declare itself. But yeah, at this point, I think all you can do really is mock where you can mock and don't don't let it take you over for one i mean that goes without saying but the way that you don't let it take you over is by remembering how absurd it is you know i think back about the evergreen state college documentary series about the total meltdown that occurred there in 2017 and on the in the documentary they play a an audio segment. You don't have a visual, but somebody recorded it. They recorded the audio with their phone. And there's a segment where there's this insane confrontation going on in this classroom. I think I mentioned it on an episode here, but it made me laugh because it's like these activists have taken hold of the classroom. And the teacher, who I personally knew, I had his wife as a professor. Elizabeth was her name. I liked her a lot. Elizabeth was cool. Elizabeth was cool, but her husband, David, he would come to our class as a guest speaker. Cause he, he, he was an incredible thinker, honestly. Like he, uh, he knew so much about, you know, the German philosophers. So he would come and he would talk to us about that. But he was the teacher on this recording. Like I didn't know him well, like I didn't know him personally really, but he came to our class and, you know, I kind of met him and that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I got along really well with his wife who was my professor. So there is a personal connection to me with this in addition to having gone to Evergreen like I actually knew the guy who's on this recording David Professor David Oh you're Professor David But he's he's trying to like kind of control the classroom but he's he's totally submitting you know he's totally submitting to the people who are trying to impose their will and they're making outrageous statements and there's this girl who tries to make a point about like, because what they're they're doing, like, these people who have taken hold of the classroom are saying, they're, they're playing the whole, like, you know, white silence is violence, so you need to say something. If you're white in this classroom, you need to speak up, and you need to support us. And then this white girl says something, and the, and the girl who's taken control of the classroom says, shut up. Like, she's like, shut the fuck up. Like when the girl does try to say something and this girl is clearly, I mean, she's clearly like a liberal, you know, like, like almost like 99% of evergreen, you know, there were every once in a while you'd have a conservative in your classes, but and usually they were there cause they had, uh, they were ex-military, but, uh, it was just, it was weird cause it was like, it, but that's just the classic thing. It's the double bind, which breaks people's minds. Like, there's actually been research that shows that children who are put in a double bind, like when they have a mom who says something like, you didn't clean your room, get out of my house. And then the kid goes to leave the house and the mom says, where are you going? You can't leave. Like telling someone to get out and then telling them them they can't leave and doing that with power over that person, like a parent who has power over their child. That's a double bind. And a kid who is subjected to that, there's research that shows that there's a far greater chance of serious mental illness, as you would expect, because that's pretty much a Zen Koan. You know, the positive side of that thinking is that's basically what a Zen Koan is, where it's it's like, sit down and meditate. Somebody tells you you have to leave. And then when you go to leave, they say you can't go. What is the solution? It's pretty much a Zen koan, and the idea is that you transcend those poles. You know, a Zen koan is basically designed to break down your rationale and logic and say, I can't rationalize that, I can't find the logic in that, I can't find the solution of that, and accepting that, and not even necessarily thinking it through, but simply allowing your mind to rest on that and meditating on it. That can enhance a Buddhist practice. I would say that I don't think you know. I don't sit there and think about Zen koans. You know, the sound of one hand clapping is, is a Zen koan. I don't sit there and think about those things, but they play a huge role in my thinking. They play a a, a huge role in the appeal that Buddhism has to me. The fact that Buddhism deals with th- those situations, because my entire life I felt like I'm constantly putting myself in double binds. But anyway, you know, if you do that to yourself for a spiritual practice, that's one thing. But when it's somebody imposing their will, telling you to leave, and then telling you you can't leave, that's going to break a kid's brain. So it's not surprising that that leads to mental illness. They they believe, they. So that's what happened in this classroom, though. This classroom had been taken over by activists, far-left activists heavily motivated by race and they, they were, this girl was screaming at the classroom, you know, if you don't speak up, you're basically enabling what, I don't know. In that situation, in the, the radical leftist bubble that is the Evergreen State College, I have no idea what being silent would enable, but they were saying the entire institution was racist. And they had just run that other professor out of town, or they were in the process of it. That was when that was all happening. And so this girl, though, it's like they tell, her that they, they tell everybody, like, if you're, if you're white and silent, you're basically committing an act of violence. And then this girl tries to talk, and the girl says, shut the fuck up. You know, it's, it's really violent language, you know. And I don't use that lightly, but it's like you can see where that goes when you're imposing your will in such a menacing way. and then putting someone in a double bind and it's unsurprisingly that girl starts crying and, it, and then she finds someone else speaks up. I think the guy who was making the recording, he says something very calm and rational, but you know, rationality was all gone. They weren't looking to engage in a actual conversation. Like the people who had taken hold of this classroom who had this professor David at their mercy, they weren't looking to have a forum where they discussed the issues at hand. They were just screaming at people and telling them to do things. And then when they did that, they told them to shut the fuck up. So it was just, it was abuse, plain and simple. It was an opportunity to impose your will and abuse the people who you have captive, basically. And so that girl starts crying, and then finally, she's she's crying, she's sobbing. And then and she, like, says something... And then this other white girl is like, and see what you're doing now. She has such, this this girl has such an awful voice. She's like, she's like, and now you've made it all about you, which is a typical white girl thing. She said, she says something like that. That's not exactly what she says, but she's like, oh, now you're doing the white woman thing of like making it all about you by crying. And it's like she just had someone scream in her face. Like she had somebody tell her to do something and then when she did it, they screamed in her face. Or screamed at her very harshly. And so she started crying. And that's not okay. Like She's paying to be there. She's in college. She's not paying to have this classroom taken over. She's not paying... This professor's salary isn't based on him allowing a small group of students to take over his classroom. And truly harass the people in it. To try to intimidate them for reasons unknown. I mean, we know the reasons though. And it's not about their political aims it's not about their social aims they just want to abuse somebody they want to abuse people they're unhappy but so this girl's paying for this because she's in this class you know somebody's paying for it if she's there on a scholarship she's there on somebody's dime but chances are she was paying for it and she naturally starts crying and then this other you know white girl who who's more she sees that as an opportunity to to dig her nails in And says, now you've made it all about you by crying, like all of the other white girls. You know, it's just, oh man, how do you, what do you do in that situation? All you can do is mock it. All you can do is laugh. You can't engage in a rational conversation. And people were looking at that situation then, and they were like, that's just a, that's a crazy school that got out of hand. And now we're seeing where that's the dialogue now. That is the dialogue in our culture now. That sort of exchange is what's going on. That microcosm is now a much larger macrocosm. It's not everything, thankfully. But the girl who's crying, the best part is she just it's the most honest moment in this whole charade, in this whole production of just madness. The girl who's crying says the most truthful thing. She she she's sobbing and she says, This is all just so weird (laughs) she's like this is all just so weird and that's truly what it is like when you're listening to it you're just like this is fucking weird this is surreal and so she says it through her tears she was the most honest person there by saying this is just so weird because that's what it is and if it's and it's weird in a bad way Because I love weirdness, obviously, but just like I love aesthetic chaos, just like I was saying how I like chaos when it's aesthetically valuable or meaningful in some way, because chaos can certainly be meaningful, but I don't like ugly chaos. I don't like ugly weirdness. And what was going on in this classroom was ugly weirdness, and that girl who was crying knew it. But you know what's really fun to make fun of? Fun to make fun of is ugly weirdness. And there are people out there who are trying to make our society ugly and weird. I don't mind it becoming beautiful and weird, because we could do that. And that beautiful weirdness can include all kinds of people. That beautiful weirdness is not limited. But what these people do are doing is based entirely on limits. It's based entirely on control. It's based entirely on imposing their will. But staying aware of the fact that it is ugly, staying aware of the fact that it is absurd, that it is the bad kind of weird, and looking for opportunities to highlight that. Because that's going to be the downfall of this. That's going to be the thing that makes people wake up who have been taken hold by this. Like somebody who's knocked out of a trance. Because that's what it is. It's a collective psychosis. And I'm re- I, you know, I was reluctant to say that a few years ago. But that, that was the phrase that was coming to mind as we watched this build. It was collective psychosis. And then it became abundantly clear. Like last year, I just was like, okay, collective psychosis has taken hold. There's no question now. And it's not the only collective psychosis but it's certainly a dominant one but staying aware of that not legitimizing it because nothing about it could ever be legitimate to me and so I have to look for opportunities and I will because this is not a society that it's not a culture that can sustain itself on its own, which is why it targets people. Its fuel is mean-spirited. It is fueled by all this behavior we're seeing. That is its fuel. That is its main purpose, as well as its fuel. It sustains itself that way. And I mean, it... It's not that you shouldn't be open-minded. It's not that you shouldn't listen to people. Because, I mean, if somebody does approach you in earnest, or or not even approach you, but certainly if they approach you, but if you're just paying attention to things. Because, I mean, I always try to pay attention to rational arguments. I also look for the irrational. I also pay attention to what's building in these chambers of irrationality, these echo chambers of irrationality. I pay attention to that, too. I try to keep tabs on everything, maybe more than I should, but I do think it's helpful just to see where everybody is going, see where everybody is coming from. And so you shouldn't avoid the people who are still being rational. I just don't know that there's much use to it. Because you'll see that from some people. There's a guy who lives here in town who does a a YouTube show where he interviews people. Like many, he's a, a disaffected liberal. He was actually—he's the one who produced the Evergreen documentary, the documentary series. There's been a couple documentaries. He—he made his own series because he was there. He made the recording. Uh, This guy Benjamin Boyce—I don't know him personally, but he lives in town here and he does YouTube shows, mostly questioning these topics. But he's very tactful, and he—he's like a lot of disaffected liberals where he's still kind of trying to tackle it from a rational point of view, and he's doing a great job. And I think at this point, he's not in that position where he's trying to convince people who don't. like. like I, I can tell that he's not trying to impose his will. He's not trying to change anybody's mind who has already made up their mind. I think at this point, he's just really trying to understand where all this is coming from. And he he has guests who have a lot of insight into some of these issues who personally turned away from it. And I think that's important. Like in the same way that this guy was a disaffected liberal who seemingly got his eyes opened really big by being part of this whole 2017 meltdown. Some of the people he has on, like he just had a guy on, I don't know his name, but he was exploring psychopathy and how... I think what he called cluster B personality disorders play a huge role in what's going on. And I mean, I personally don't approach it from a, you know, that sort of clinical psychology point of view, but it's pretty obvious that it's part of it. I mean, the fact that so many of these people are waving around their official diagnoses as well as their self-diagnoses, like the fact that they wave those around so freely is a really bizarre part of this. Like when has a group of people with, even if they're a small number, like when has a group of people with significant cultural influence made their mental illness like a point of pride? It's, because that idea started as the whole mental illness thing, the whole uh, removing the stigma. Like I, I mentioned that I worked for a business that was heavily involved. It was part of the, part of the mental health industry. And, you know, one of the big platforms at that time, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that, that range was like removing the stigma around mental illness. And at that point, not that many people had come out. Like Catherine Zeta-Jones was one of the most noteworthy celebrities. Like she had come out as bipolar. And I have no problem with people talking about their Diagnosis. I have no problem with that being a part of the conversation. It's very interesting, but that was sort of a foreshadowing to what we have now, which is tons and tons of people under the guise of being mental health advocates are just constantly talking about their own mental illness. And in some cases, it's never in some cases it's, it's never even been diagnosed. It's because they read about it on Wikipedia, like they read a list of. You know they have those uh, like the dsm has its like if you have three or more of these behaviors you might be bipolars you might be bipolars if you uh if you have three or more of these symptoms these behaviors but how many of these people who have self-diagnosed just like went to wikipedia and saw a couple things they related to especially people who are completely lost like their sense of identity is lost and like they're reading about mental health on wikipedia and there's now this new status like whereas it started as removing the stigma whereas it started as like normalizing the conversation around mental health which i agree with you know i agree with that like i agree people should be able to talk about their afflictions without judgment i mean you always run a certain risk of course Like if a woman is is very open about being bipolar, you know, the people who know her or people who meet her, that's something to be aware of. Somebody might choose not to date somebody who is just upfront with the fact that they have some sort of serious personality disorder. I mean, that makes complete sense. But it's sort of a win-win for everybody in that somebody isn't publicly judged for that. But then people who don't want anything to do with that can can, they also know. It's like, oh, now I know, so I'm not even gonna go there. I don't really I don't need to figure I don't need to see what happens in that situation. But it's gone so far overboard and it's become a status thing where it's like and I and I know this personally, like this is again something that isn't just in some corner of the internet. I saw this with a group of women I know here who, they all kind of had self-diagnosed issues. Some of them were, had real diagnoses. You know, some of them had actually been diagnosed. But it was, it was kind of part of the social fabric. And it seemed like everybody had to have something, even if it was just depression. I mean, you saw where like depression and anxiety were big. And the, the reality is those things are big. Like, like I don't want to come across like I'm denying those things. But you can see where it's, it's become a sort of status especially with younger people, where there's a need to have something, even when you don't. If all your friends, you know, are depressed and anxious and they're clinically depressed and anxious and they they have this disorder, oh, borderline personality, there's almost this pressure for you to have it too. It becomes kind of a decoration. But as these people have, have gained more and more influence, it's kind of incredible to think that one of the banners they are waving is affliction. One of the banners that they are waving in their battle is saying, we're crazy. We have mental problems. Listen to us. Let us impose our will on you. Not that every single person who's doing that has mental issues or is claiming to. I'm not claim- I'm not saying that at all, but it's, it's obviously a part of all this. It's obviously a, a pretty big part, actually. And so that's so strange about it. I mean, that's the absurd part of it as well, where it's like, on one hand, accept that we're all mentally ill and we want to broadcast it to everybody. But you also have to treat us like we're sane. And we know what's in your best interest. We know what's in everybody's best interest. And, and we have the right to tell you what you can do and not do or say or, or not say. That's a double bind right there. Accept the fact that we are mentally ill and proud of it, that we have mental health disorders and we're proud of it, but treat us like we are the, the same people who know what's right for everybody. Zero logic in that, which is why you can't use logic, which is why you can't use rationale. You just have to say, oh yeah, you're, you know, unfortunately you can't just say you're crazy and that's not my approach anyway. Like my response to that sort of, that movement isn't to say, oh, you're all crazy. Oh, you know, that's too obvious. It's too easy. It's mean spirited. And if somebody really does have some sort of mental illness, that's the last thing I want to mock them for. But that's where creativity comes in. That's why you have to get creative. But those are the sort of absurdities you start to notice. You're just like, oh, that's, hmm. Hmm. I mean, that should keep you sane. But like I was talking about last night, it's very easy to forget what personality disorders are like, because you do have this sort of fictional idea of what they are. But if you've ever been in a situation where you're having an argument with somebody and, and I'm not somebody who goes, like, if somebody argues with me, I don't just default to the view that, oh, this person's crazy because they have a problem with me, or they disagree with me. I don't I don't ever default to that view that you must be crazy to disagree with me. I mean, I'm crazy in my own way. Not diagnosable. I'm crazy, though. I mean, I'll never, I would never deny that. <laughs> you'd, <laughs> you'd know that I was crazy. If, you, if you've listened, if you listen to this show... You'd know that I was crazy if I said that I wasn't crazy. There's a, see, that's a Zen koan. You'd know I was crazy if I said I wasn't crazy. But I'm not the kind of person, like, that's not my go-to, is to be like, oh, you're mentally ill. You, oh, you disagreed with me? That must mean you're mentally ill, because I'm, I'm just a pillar of sanity. You know, I, I would never do that, but, but you do have experiences, like I, and I've definitely had plenty of experiences with mentally ill people, diagnosably mentally ill, people who the DSM has it fairly right at the very least. It may, it may be a temporary, you know, this may just be the way that we refer to certain afflictions during this time period, and we'll later have a more comprehensive understanding and better terminology. But right now I can tell you that I, I've known people, some of them fairly well, who are hundred percent diagnosable based on the standards of the, the DSM at any given time, which not that you can trust that hundred percent, but like, you'll find that you'll be like hearing them talk about something and you've kind of forgotten that that's a part of things. Like you've kind of, cause I mean, you don't do that. You don't, if you're friends with somebody like that, it's not like you go around just thinking like, Oh, they're crazy. They're crazy. Oh, they have this wrong with them. And people don't like someone saying crazy, but guess what? Like the people I know who are legitimately crazy, like think it's funny when they're called crazy. Like I have a friend who's very out there. I'm not going to diagnose him, but you could, I think he was diagnosed as schizophrenic when he was in high school, but he's not schizophrenic. He's, he's, he's another, I don't know. He's, he's otherworldly, honestly. But like one time he was, we were on the phone and he was talking to me about something years ago and and he just, he said something like, uh, like, do I sound crazy? And I was just like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you sound crazy. And he thought it was the funniest thing in the world, you know? So it's like crazy people aren't necessarily sensitive about being called crazy. I just have to say that because that's another one of the things they don't want you to say. That's another, this is me being an old man. That's another one of the things they don't want you to say is crazy. It's true though. You're not supposed to say that. But sometimes you'll be talking to somebody you know and you like and you don't go through life like your friendship with them isn't based on you constantly thinking this person's there's something wrong with this person. But there'll be a moment where you like are talking about something or have a disagreement and then you just realize at one point you're like, oh, wait, this is spiraling into something else. And I think that's often a sign for me, like even though I spiral, like I don't do that when I'm like when I have a disagreement with somebody or like a debate or something, I try not to spiral because that's how you end up arguing about something else entirely. And if somebody's not drunk, like if you've had a drunk argument, like like my friend and I were at a bar years ago and this guy tried to pick a fight with us. He, and he, he kept arguing he accused my friend of saying something to like his female friend that my friend didn't even say. He was like, you called you called Dustin's girlfriend a bitch, dude?" And my friend was like, "What?" Like, who? And he's like, dude, Like, I heard you. You called Dustin's girlfriend a bitch. I, I don't even know why he's, like, white knighting for her. But my friend didn't say that. <laughs> you know? And uh, this guy's just drunk. And uh, so they were arguing about, like, that. Like, whether or not my friend called his friend's girlfriend a bitch. So they were arguing about that. And then, like, next thing you know, they, like, the guy kind of shifted the argument to where he was arguing about something slightly different. No, it was, you need to get out. Because this guy, he apparently worked there as a barback, but he was off shift. I mean, he doesn't control the bar. He's a, you're a fucking barback, and now you're drunk after your shift or before whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, dude. And he, he then he told us to get out, and he had no authority to do that. He's like, I think you just need to leave. And that was he, basically he, he in that moment he was saying, you can't touch the rock. And my friend, sure enough, it was my friend Nick german-irish like he's not a he's not a fighter he doesn't pick he doesn't willingly get into conflicts but it's like if somebody if he's drinking and like somebody tells him if they try to impose their will on him like he will not back down you know that's something i know about him from my own experience like he and i've gotten in arguments when we were drunk before growing up and stuff like he won't back down and so this guy i could see like i could see nick's back just stiffen and it didn't come, like, just a. it never came to violence, so this isn't some amazing story about a bar fight or anything. But, like, when this guy goes, it, you could see this guy shift the argument, and then he turns it into, I think you guys just need to keep, leave. You just need to get out. And I saw my friend's back just stiffen, and he took, like, two steps toward the guy, and he was like, he, he's like, you can't do that. You can't tell us to do that. And then it became this like back and forth about like how we need to leave. Like the argument started as like you called Dustin's girlfriend a bitch, and then it turned into you just need to leave. So now they're having an argument over whether this guy has the authority to tell us to leave. And the guy he had like he had uh, buttons on his jacket, like not not like button up buttons, but like uh, like little those little buttons that you pin on, like like band buttons. You know, I can't remember what those are called. Like, you use a button machine, and you can put them on stuff. And they were Marvel, or no? They, they were, or they were, they were like comic book related. So this guy had like comic book related pins, buttons on his jacket. And my friend knows a lot about comics. He's a big comic guy. And he was like, "Oh, I see you have that button." Like, and he's a psychologist now and stuff. You know, not not that it takes a psychologist to like use a little psychology on someone who's drunk and trying to start a fight but my friend tried to like deflect the argument and he was like oh, i see you have that button like did you ever read the comic where like superman grabs wonder woman and they like fl- like fly to another planet and like have sex and like a, a volcano erupts and i've never heard of this that's what he said though he's like the one where wonder woman and, and superman like fly off into the cosmos and like fuck Or it's implied that they fuck and then like a volcano erupts while this is going on. And the guy goes, I know what you're talking about, but they didn't fuck. (laughs) Because apparently it doesn't show that, but that's like what's implied with the volcano erupting while this is going on. It's like obviously suggestive, according to my friend. And this, this guy, like then he's arguing about that. Like, here my friend was trying to, like, bridge a gap and be like, hey, we're both into comic books. Do you just want to talk about comics, basically? And, yeah, like, I mean, that's an obvious little trick. It's like telling a kid, like, I have a toy for you or something, you know, but still, it's like, what else are you going to do in that situation? And then the guy goes, like, they didn't fuck. And then they start getting into an argument about comics, and at that point I just went to the bartender and I was like, I'm just, well, cause what I realized is I was like, I, I didn't know this guy, but I was like, he's been standing here arguing with us. Like th- this argument has gone through like three different phases and I know, I know he's not going to like take a swing. He just wants to like talk shit to us. Like I realized like this isn't a guy who's actually going to start a physical fight. Cause you don't know when someone confronts you at a bar if that's going to happen but it was clear like by this time he was just looking to have really petty stupid arguments with us about everything and so i just went to the bartender and i was like hey this guy's been trying to start a fight with us for the last five minutes and sure and they just like broke it up they didn't kick him out or anything but it was just one of those things but like that's an argument with a drunk person and i don't think that guy was mentally ill i think he was just belligerent and he probably had a crush on his friend's girlfriend, which is why he felt the need to like, he probably heard someone say bitch and thought that my friend said it or something. And he decided he's, he was probably looking for an opportunity to impress his friend's girlfriend. That's, I, that's my own psych 101 interpretation. I'm sure it's true, though, honestly. It was like the fact that he started a fight with us about something that he accused my friend of saying to his friend's girlfriend, like, that's absurd. That's completely absurd. But people do that. Like when you, when you hear about like people getting killed in fights and stuff, like how many of those fights are over shit like that? But uh, like, even though he was drunk and like, I I doubt he was mentally ill. He was just drunk. But sometimes you'll be having like, like an argument with somebody or just a discussion even doesn't have to be an argument, a discussion with somebody who does have some sort of diagnosis. And you'll realize though, that it's like this total spiral where you're not even discussing the thing that you're supposed to be discussing. Like in an argument, you're no longer even arguing about the thing you're supposed to be arguing about. It's turned into this complete spiral and it's treacherous. And it is kind of like arguing with a drunk person because they'll like cycle back to something really weird. Like they'll get hung up on something really weird. And then they like move like, like, and that's what we see with a lot of these things. It's why it's why I was talking about like not using 1984 and Nazi Germany as analogies anymore. Because when you compare something to 1984 or you compare a situation or a politician to Hitler, you end up now starting an argument about that and not even addressing the thing that you were actually concerned about, like the thing that you were using to you know you were using those things to make an analogy to something going on now. But now you're arguing about the thing that you used for the analogy because it's so distracting it's kind of the same thing it's like a spiral and you if you pay attention like a lot of the arguments that are taking place are of that nature where it's like wait what are we arguing about again like what are we arguing about now but that's how you kind of get yourself out of that moment and if you've been in an argument like that and you notice that happening That's when you use humor because you're not going to get out, you know, at that point, like all bets are off. Like that's not a salvageable argument if it's a spiral like that. And I'm not saying it just happens with people who have mental illnesses. I'm not looking to target people with mental illnesses here, but because so many of the people who are engaging in these kinds of discussions right now, because our culture has this happening again and again everywhere. You know, and, these, and some of the people doing it are these proponents of, you know, removing mental health stigma, stig- stigma, stigma, diagnosing themselves publicly, sometimes self-diagnosing themselves. You know, it's something to keep in mind. All of these arguments are just a spiral, and no logic is going to get you out of that. No rationale is going to get you out of that. Rationale is going to appeal to the people who are coming to you in good faith. Or that you just see operating in good faith. And like I was saying, if somebody disagrees with you and they're coming from a good place, well, that's great. It's great that you can have that conversation. But when you realize that it's a spiral, you have no business participating. Use humor. Humor is an entry point. It's an exit point. It's a, it'll stop. It'll, it'll, it's a break. Humor can put the brakes on something even if it's just internal, even if it's just you thinking in your head, oh yeah, this is wild. This is just a mutant situation. (laughs) You know, something is mutated into something like absurd and unrecognizable. I have to remember that. I have to remember that that's not the standard.